Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we dive into the tortured history of the Miss America pageant, dip into Chicago's ties to underground comic scene, and surface the inequities in healthcare ravaging our nation. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Biden Files, and debut music from Chicago's top local artists. It's Lumpin' Week in Review for September 3rd, 2021. Bad at Sports spoke to Saitu Hayden, a longtime African-American artist whose career dates back to the days of underground comics. Duncan McKenzie and Brian Andrews talked about his 50 years in the independent publishing spaces, black comics, and some of the bright lights that made the comic scene happen. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. So maybe just as a great way to kind of just jump into your work and what you've been doing, right? We've got these incredible sort of survey and historical shows of comics going on uh, in Chicago this summer. Uh, And you've got some work in the MCA, correct? Yes. um, I've got some strips that I used to do for the Chicago Defender when I was in college uh, back in the 70s. And they put that in there along with some some other items from some artists that I knew that I included in there as well. Well, let's start with that. I mean, obviously, we're going back to the 70s. You're still making comics now, so we got a long road we can travel down. But, uh, yeah, tell us about the work that's actually in that show. Well, it was called a strip. The strip was called Wally Koo, originally titled The James Gang, but I changed it a little bit later on after some involvement with a um, black student body group at Roosevelt University. Um, it was something that a friend of mine introduced me to, Earl Calloway at the Chicago Defender. He was the entertainment editor there. And he said, hey, man, you want to do a comic strip for the Defender? And uh, he, he was doing some freelance photography himself, that person being Marvin Jones, a fellow student at Columbia College at that time. And I said, yeah. So I came up with a strip. I came up with a theme about a uh, kid being threatened by gangs and tried to come up with some humorous uh, situations out of that. And uh, I took it to the Defender. They liked it, and I got a job. Boom. Okay. And so how long, how long did that strip run? Pretty much through my five years of college. Now, that's another story. <laughs> um, and, and so let's talk about the work itself. I mean, so you've got sort of this situational... Um, idea here, but what's in the work itself? So is it humorous? Are there longer storylines? Like, are there strong well, techniques? I'm just kind of wanting to just know to what it, we'd see. Well, just to, just to put in perspective, uh, this was about 71. Um, around that time, um, there were very, very few black comic strips in the major newspapers right. anywhere to be found. The one that was most prominent was by a guy named Maury Turner, who's also in this exhibit and in the book that I'm in. Uh, he had a strip called We Pals, and it was sort of like a, like a black peanuts, for lack of a better term. But he touched on racial issues in a nice, gentle, humorous way. Um, so taking that into context, I sort of kind of took a similar approach, but Mine was more like, okay, these are just more like just regular black kids. It's not necessarily the ghetto or impoverishment or anything like that, but it's just more like out of recollections of things I experienced in my childhood um, growing up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. 
So even though the strip ran in Chicago, um, there were some things from my, my own past that leaked in there. So when you say the book that you and Maury Turner are in, you mean it's life as I see it, right? Which is the compilation of black cartoonists in Chicago from 1940 to 1980? Yes, that's the book. And um, when uh, Dan Nadal uh, contacted me about that uh, over a year ago, I was, I was like, somebody really still remembers this? Because, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's so much in my past. And, and then, but then it was really kind of an honor that, that it was noticed and that somebody did recall that. Um, I mean, I received a reward for this, an award for this years ago from Malcolm X College as well. And I was just as, as baffled then. That was probably a good 10 years or so after I'd done the strip but someone and other people remembered it. Uh, a gentleman named, um, uh, that, oh God, I forgot his name now, Tim. Um, well, he, he put me in a book called Pioneering Cartoonists of Color. And again, that strip, strip was featured in there. So it just, it just sort of keeps, it stays out there. It's, I, I never did a compilation of any of the strips. At one point, I did try to go to um, all the major syndicates to try to get it in a mainstream paper, um, but uh, I was unsuccessful. Well, and that was one of the things that I was thinking about, thinking about this conversation, was the Chicago Defender and the, the role the Chicago Defender played in giving a space and a voice to people who, who were not being featured in the syndicate. Papers. Well, that was that was one of the things that I found like kind of gratifying, looking at I'm part of a pantheon of, of black cartoonists that really many of which never got like the credit or the exposure or any in the mainstream acceptance that uh, many of their contemporary peers. Uh, there's a guy named Jay Jackson I found in this book. I saw him earlier, found him, discovered him earlier in a show called Valmore about uh, black hair products from the 40s and 50s which is another path that many black illustrators find themselves on. We find ourselves working for black hair companies and other black-oriented businesses because that's just where the breaks really were. And it gave you a chance to perfect your craft and still make money, you know, doing what you love. So let's jump from that past to more to the contemporary because I feel like you also put out widely celebrated books around Malcolm X and Barack Obama. Those are things that happened uh, later on that were really, really cool. I mean, that, those were graphic novels uh, aimed at a sort of an, with an educational bent to them. And um, I, they were two people that I admired greatly, um, both at Malcolm X and Barack Obama. So to have a chance to do a book like that uh, was was extremely gratifying. I'd also, you know, I'd managed to do some independent books in the years prior to that. I'd worked for, uh, I, well, I had an advertising career too. I worked for, among other places, I worked for Foot Cone and Belding, now known as FCB. And uh, I met a guy there named Raf Nieves. He was, uh, he worked in, in the uh, Mount Room production department, and he wanted to be a comic book writer. He knew a lady that had spent some years in the Peace Corps that wanted to write a book about her experiences. 
he convinced her to turn it into a comic book that was called Tales from the Heart of Africa. Um, it was originally published by something called Entropy, a small publisher out of Minnesota. Then later on, uh, I think another publisher, another independent publisher picked us up until somebody at Marvel saw it. And at that point, they had Epic Comics, the creator-owned uh, label, and we were offered a creator-owned deal to do a graphic novel version of um, Tales from the Heart. The first one was called uh, The Temporary Natives, which I love that title, and I, I just someday I think that's gonna be a movie or something. And then the follow-up was called Bloodlines, which uh, dealt with the characters going through a, a, some friends that had a relationship they were also all in the Peace Corps. This is in Central African Republic in the 1980s. So there was a dictator there named Bokasa that was not in power at the time, but it was a lot about the memories of, of living under a dictatorship in Africa at that time. So those were things I was really happy about. And it was just like, they, they probably did lead me to other graphic novel opportunities later on. But it, it wasn't something I was able to constantly pursue, as, as some independent comic people do, will tell you. You know, you got other jobs, you do other things. My joke is that I'm an art hole, and uh, where, 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 where the money is waving is usually the direction I turn towards. Uh, that's often how we decide what gets attention in our lives, too. Like, <laughs> who, who's paying me the most right now? Because, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, worked, I worked for uh, uh, different ad agencies, Ogilvy & Mather, J. Walter Thompson, and then I, I finished off at the, the big guy, Leo Burnett. In between there, I worked for a uh, really big uh, illustration studio called Etsy. And uh, met a lot of really cool guys there. And uh, most of them, if not all, we were all storyboard artists. That's the bread and butter in Chicago and probably most other major markets for artists. If you're not doing storyboards for movies or, t or, or uh, um, cartoons, then you're doing them for TV commercials. That was really what was available here. That's what sort of swayed me in, in following that path for a good chunk of my, my career because I discovered like, much too late that comic books were just paying by the page. Storyboards were paying by the panel. Oh my God, how did Jack Kirby ever do it? Oh, he was just really fast. <laughs> Didn't have a life either, probably. <laughs>
Chuck Mertz talked with Ann Pollock about her book, Sickening, a timely study of how health inequities in America have led to horrific outcomes during the pandemic. Pollock discusses how the lack of basic care in poor urban areas has exacerbated the COVID crisis and how choices made by politicians have created yawning gulfs in care. This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. This virus does not discriminate. To what degree does epidemiological risk discriminate? Are there discriminating factors in the incidence, distribution, impossible control of diseases? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there is this nice kind of sheen to the idea that medical problems um, that are caused by viruses or bacteria shouldn't discriminate, right? So they shouldn't have the same kind of human categories that might say that this life is more valuable than that life or this body is more vulnerable than another. And yet we know um, in global health and social medicine that this is not precisely true, right? So even though it is the case that COVID is caused by a virus, many things are caused by bacteria or by other things, um, it's not the case that they just kind of happen at random. So we know that, um, you know, with COVID, for example, um, exposure through things like essential work uh, was really important right from the beginning. We know that the underlying conditions that make people differentially vulnerable to the virus are also products of pre-existing inequalities. So when we would hear things like, okay, diabetes is a risk factor um, or hypertension is a risk factor, that kind of tended to take for granted that there were not already inequalities baked into categories like that. And then um, I think that this was particularly palpable here in the United Kingdom where I live, that um, the differential conditions of housing, so crowded housing conditions make stay-at-home orders very different than, um, you know, kind of a spacious uh, kind of accommodations. And so where uh, the imperative to stay at home um, keeps many people safe, it doesn't keep everyone safe. And, um, you know, so this was another additional kind of element uh, to the ways in which the COVID crisis absolutely discriminated against particular groups of people. And in the book, I talk mostly about anti-Black racism in the United States. Of course, some of the same things could be um, extended and, and analysis could be made of other groups as well. But I think that the very particular history of the United States and the fundamental nature of anti-Black racism in structuring both the history and the ongoing society kind of makes it worth specific focus. And that's uh, what I did in this book. When you were just answering that question, I came, I have like 56 questions written down for you. And uh, I just came up with another question because I didn't really think about it before. Why the desire to be in this together and the lack of institutional togetherness, if you will. What explains that disconnect from our desire to be in this together and a lack of a system that causes togetherness? It's such an important question. I mean, the book, so the book has kind of two beginnings. One is the introduction, which I was writing in 2020 in the summer. And it was kind of July 4th. And I was thinking about this, this moment of the summer of 2020 and the extent to which we weren't in it together. But the substantive chapters of the book start at another similar moment, which was September 11th, 2001, and specifically look at the postal workers who died in the anthrax attacks. 
And this was another moment where I think that whenever there's this kind of a threat that seems novel, right? So terrorism on a scale and kind of a spectacular character that had not been seen before in the United States, even if it had been elsewhere. And then this novel coronavirus, right? So it feels new. So therefore it should be um, something that is more, um, that should follow a different structure, a different striation than something old. And yet um, what we saw with September 11th as well, and certainly, you know, with the aftermath that I talk about, uh, you know, surprisingly, largely forgotten, I think, in the public imagination, the loss of these postal workers um, who had endeavored to get care, had endeavored to get answers from the government and had been thwarted in doing so. Um, that I think that there's this way that um, the narrative of we're all in this together helps to obscure the of lived conditions of those who are never safe. So not before September 11th, right? So the United States was not this bastion of security before September 11th, 2001. And it wasn't in 2020 either. And so I think that there's a desire for, for the novel to somehow upend or transform that rather than reinforce existing inequalities, which is of course what we have seen um, you know, after September 11th, there it, there it felt to some people like there might be a moment um, where there might be an interest in building a public health infrastructure, um, that there might be a moment of a kind of um, infrastructural investment. That's not the way that it happened. And there are multiple cases like that in the book that I talk about. So Katrina being another one that you mentioned because of what's going on today. Um, so Hurricane Katrina was another one of these moments where it was like, there was this uh, discussion of, okay, it's a wake up call to recognize that there is poverty in America, that there are people who are being left behind, that there are people who are treated like refugees rather than like full citizens. Um, and we could of course problematize that rhetoric too. Um, and yet the wake up call still needs to be happening. Um, in part, I mean, because these things are ongoing. On, on those postal workers, uh, they died on what could be considered the front lines of the war on terror, and that there were postal workers right after 9-11. During the pandemic, as you were pointing out earlier about essential workers, uh, we have seen frontline workers again, now essential workers, made vulnerable to the coronavirus. Is this a repeated history of racialized vulnerability during a crisis? And in light of worsening climate change, can we expect the same kind of racialized vulnerability to crisis to become more acute? Yes, I think so. I mean, I do think that it is important to look at the specificities of each of the cases as well and the ways that they don't operate in precisely the same way. So. Um, the postal workers being particularly vulnerable, and we have seen that with delivery uh, workers um, in this pandemic as well. Um, but I, I do think that there is something specific that emerges in each um, case too. So the kind of specificity of Washington DC as this place and this site, which has a very particular postal infrastructure as well, um, you know, is also worthwhile. So one of the things that I um, try to do in the book is to both um, kind of sit with the stories a little bit longer than what I think we often do when kind of doom scrolling and 
kind of going through the litany of how things are all horrible, uh, which they are, um, but also trying to think about, okay, what are the specific mechanisms in this instance? Um, and I think that for, in the postal workers case and the anthrax attacks of 2001, um, these, uh, some of the things were very much the same of like, okay, we have to keep the essential infrastructure going. So we're gonna disregard um, those who are keeping that operating. But then there are also very specific things around the way that healthcare operates in HMOs and the ways that the um, kind of assumptions about who needs to be believed when they're talking about their concerns, um, who needs emergency access to medicines in a context when there's concern about antibiotic resistance and you know who um, is considered to be uh, someone who investment is warranted in. So that's capital work, Capitol Hill workers and, and many other people uh, were uh, popping Cipro in that period. Um, and so, you know, that this, I think, did op has operated a little bit differently now. Um, and I think that uh, there are continuities and discontinuities, I suppose, is, is what I would say about, uh, about the pandemic and the kind of post-September 11th. Uh, moment. Alright, I have to be real quiet. It's 3.45 on Tuesday morning and I'm pilfering food and stuff from the GoPro. I'm pretty good at knowing exactly... Uh, I'm pretty good at knowing exactly where to step, but I don't want to wake no one up. Last time I tried to do this, I, I almost got... Oh, who's that? What the... Who the heck would be knocking around this time of night? See, you can't just do this blind. You mustn't, like, plot your course in the dark. You have to know what you want and where it is before you take it. Was that? Alright. Alright, here we go. And what do I want here? This, I want the nacho cheese to reap. Oh, oh, what was that? There's something in here with me, whatever it is. I, it's gone. Okay, I gotta make this quick. Alright. Alright. I got the chips. Next time I list is salsa. Here we go. Alright, let's see now. I need... Let's check the ice box. Uh, really... oh, oh, nice! Oh. Ah! My bad. Get off me! Ah, get off me! Oh, oh my, oh, my face! Oh, my beautiful face! This got scratched! Oh. I gotta get to the closet. Look, I get the. Alright. I'm in the closet. I think a very small humanoid creature with blades for hands was stabbing me. If I don't make it, this will be my last will and testament. I gotta find a way out of here. It's in here with me. Yeah, I gotta get the light. <laughs> Come on out, you coward. Here it comes. I can see his teeth shining in the shadows. 
Hey. Hey. Oh, it's Dash. Jamie's cat friend. <laughs> you sure are a watchdog here, buddy, aren't you? I'm sorry I scared you. Just take my chips and salsa and be on my way. Dash, what the fuck is your problem? These are my chips, Dash. You can't have them. You can't have my chips. All right, all right, take the chips. All right. Joink, those are my chips. You can't have my chips. <laughs> Whoa! Oh. Take your stupid chips, Dash. You foiled my plans for the last time, Dash. Mark my words, you won't defeat me. Mark my words. This week on The Biden Files, Biden staunchly defends the Afghanistan exit and blames Trump for a bad deal. Mask mandates return as Delta swamps the United States. Texas passes severe restrictions on voting and abortion. McCarthy threatened telecommunications companies and the cops sue Trump. These are The Biden Files. Day 220, August 27th. Two suicide bombers and gunmen targeted crowds near Kabul Airport Thursday morning, killing at least 40 and wounding at least 200. 13 U.S. Marines were also killed in that attack. The attack was believed to have been carried out by members of the Islamic State K Group, an affiliate that grew out of disaffected Taliban members who hold an even more extreme view of Islam. President Joe Biden vowed revenge in a tense statement saying, quote, Know this, we will not forgive, we will not forget, we will hunt you down and make you pay. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker became the latest to announce a statewide indoor mask mandate for anyone two years or older at a public place. The governor also announced a vaccine mandate for all K-12 and higher education employees in addition to that mask mandate for residents. COVID is spiking in downstate Illinois and intensive care beds are becoming scarce. Illinois reported a seven-day average of 3,500 cases yesterday, which is treble a month ago. The positivity rate overall is 6%. Some regions, however, are seeing positivity rates as high as 20%. The Supreme Court rejected the Biden administration's latest moratorium on evictions. The decision puts hundreds of thousands of tenants at risk of losing shelter, while the Biden administration struggles to speed the flow of federal funding to people who are behind in rent because of the pandemic. Only around $5.1 billion of the $46 billion in federal aid had been dispersed to residents at the end of July. And a group of seven Capitol Police officers have filed a lawsuit accusing Trump and nearly 20 members of far-right extremist groups of a plot to disrupt the peaceful transition of power. The suit, which names the members of the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and Trump associates such as Roger Stone, is arguably the most expansive civil effort to date, seeking to hold Trump and his allies accountable for the storming of the Capitol building on January 6th. It is also the first to allege that Trump worked in concert with both far-right extremists and political organizers to promote his baseless lies that the election was marred by fraud. The suit is formally contending that Trump and his co-defendants violated the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Day 221, August 28th. A conservative radio host from Florida who criticized vaccination efforts and called himself Mr. Anti-Vax before contracting COVID-19 himself has died. Mark Bernier was hospitalized with COVID three weeks ago. 
His operations manager, Mark McKinney, told local media, quote, if you've listened to his show, you've heard him talk about how anti-vaccine he is on the air. He is at least the second far-right radio host to die from COVID. Bernier's brother said that on his deathbed, he urged people to be vaccinated. Right-wing Representative Madison Cawthorn from North Carolina falsely suggested that elections in the U.S. are rigged and said there will be bloodshed if the country's electoral system continues on its current path. Cawthorn, who is a freshman lawmaker and a pro-Trump star of the far right, made the remarks during an event at the Macon County Republican Party headquarters in Franklin, North Carolina. Quote, the things that we were wanting to fight for, it doesn't matter if our votes don't count because, you know, if our election systems continue to be rigged and continue to be stolen, then it's going to lead to one place, which is bloodshed. The United States has struck twice at ISIS-K in Afghanistan, killing at least two and detonating a vehicle laden with explosives in Kabul. The military also intercepted rockets aimed at the Kabul airport early this morning. President Biden had warned that a terrorist attack against the Afghan capital's airport was highly likely. The vehicle apparently was a suicide attempt to detonate at the airport. At least 300 Americans and hundreds of university students now remain in country. They've been told to flee over land to the nation of Turkey. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th riot at the Capitol plans to ask telco companies to preserve the phone records of several Republican lawmakers who participated in the Stop the Steal rally, which served as a prelude to the Capitol insurrection. The list includes Representatives Lauren Babert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan, Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar, Mo Brooks, Madison Cawthorn, Matt Gates, Louis Gamert, Jody Heiss, and Scott Perry. Last week, the committee demanded records from federal officials, from Trump allies and staffers, including many of Trump's family members. Day 222, August 29th. America's COVID surge continues unabated as the daily average for hospitalized COVID-19 patients in the U.S. is now over 100,000. That is higher than in any previous surge except last winter's before most Americans were eligible to be vaccinated. The influx of patients is straining hospitals and pushing healthcare workers to the brink as deaths have risen to an average of more than 1,000 a day for the first time since March. New Orleans remains today without electricity as police and rescue workers began assessing the damage from Hurricane Ida. As search and rescue teams fanned out to respond to calls for help, it appeared the levees put in place to help protect the city of New Orleans after the devastation of Katrina had held. But dozens of streets in New Orleans remain flooded. Jefferson Parish officials have not yet been able to make contact with residents of Grand Isle, where the Category 4 storm came ashore. The rest of Louisiana is in rough shape, however, and the full extent of the damage is yet to be known. Hurricane Ida made landfall as the strongest hurricane ever. A judge in Ohio was ordered a hospital to treat a COVID patient with Invermectin. Despite warnings from experts that the anti-parasite drug has not proved effective against the virus and can be dangerous in large doses. The ruling came after a hospital refused to provide the drug, citing safety and efficacy. His wife sued and found an outside doctor to prescribe it. In a related story, Rand Paul claimed that federal researchers will not objectively study Invermectin as a treatment for COVID because of their hatred for Donald Trump. The Cincinnati Inquirer reported that during a meeting with constituents in Kentucky, Paul said, quote, The hatred for Trump deranged these people so much they're unwilling to objectively study it. So someone like me that's in the middle on it, I can't tell you they will not study Invermectin. They will not study hydrochloroquine without the taint of their hatred for Trump. Worth noting that hydrochloroquine has in fact been extensively studied and has shown to have no effect on COVID. Rand Paul is also not a doctor. He is an ophthalmologist. Day 223, August 30th, the American military departed Afghanistan with the final planes leaving Kabul airport overnight. 
That departure ends an occupation of that nation for nearly two decades in what became the United States' longest war. Evacuation flights ended on Monday, leaving behind an estimated 100,000 people who could possibly be eligible for an expedited American visa. Many of them are former interpreters for the U.S. military who are in some stage of the process to receive a special immigrant visa. They fear they are at risk of being killed by the Taliban. Thousands along Lake Tahoe have been ordered to evacuate as wildfires and major conflagrations bore down. The Caldor Fire has been intensified along the California-Nevada border and more than 20,000 structures could be threatened. Smoke from the fire has already deteriorated the air quality there to unhealthy levels. Wildfire season is unusually violent this year due to climate change. The U.S. Education Department has launched investigations into five states that prohibited universal mask mandates in schools and has warned them the laws run afoul of civil rights laws that protect students with disabilities. Iowa, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Utah have been notified that the Office for Civil Rights would determine whether the prohibitions are restricting access for students. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends that everyone in a school wears a mask, regardless of vaccination status, so that schools can more safely resume in-person instruction. A federal judge has thrown out a major Trump administration rule that scaled back federal protections for streams, marshes, and wetlands across the U.S., reversing one of the previous administration's most significant environmental rollbacks. U.S. Judge Rosemary Marquez wrote that Trump officials committed serious errors while writing the regulation and that leaving it in place could lead to serious environmental harm. A number of business and farm groups had supported the push to replace the Obama-era standards with the, quote, navigable waters protection rule on the grounds that states were better positioned to regulate many waterways and that the previous protections were too restrictive. And as the U.S. departed Kabul, Trump released a statement saying in part, quote, all equipment should be demanded to be immediately returned to the United States, and that includes every penny of the $85 billion in cost. And as the United States departed Kabul, Trump released a statement saying, in part, all equipment should be demanded to be immediately returned to the United States, and that includes every penny of the $85 billion in cost. A version of Trump's claim circulates widely on right-leaning social media that somehow the Taliban has ended up with $85 billion of U.S. weaponry. In fact, the United States spent $85 billion to train, equip, and house the Afghan military and police over the past 20 years. There's no evidence that the Taliban has seized billions of dollars in U.S. weaponry. Day 224, August 31st. President Biden called the evacuation of Kabul an extraordinary success as he vehemently defended his decision to end America's war in Afghanistan. Biden forcefully rejected widespread criticism surrounding the end of the 20-year war, blaming Trump and his negotiating team for getting a bad deal with the Taliban that boxed Biden in saying the real choice was between leaving or escalating, Biden said firmly, I was not going to extend this forever war. Biden also said the nation owned a debt of gratitude to the 13 troops who died in the evacuation mission. Biden has been bitterly criticized by some of the families of those troops. Worth noting is that while the U.S. occupied Afghanistan, some 15,000 civilians a year died. Louisiana has told residents to stay away as the state continues to address the damage caused by Hurricane Ida. While New Orleans appears to have survived the hurricane, power remains out across the state. Water and sewage are both offline. The sober governor, John Bell Edwards, said there is no timetable for people to return and that search and rescue efforts are still ongoing. The Texas legislature has sent a major rewrite of the state's election laws to Republican Governor Greg Abbott, ending a chapter in the bitter fight over voting rights. Abbott said he will sign the bill. Critics say the voting restrictions disproportionately impact people of color. The bill, which was sparked by Trump's false claims of a stolen election, set off a scramble in Republican-led states to enact ever more restrictive rules on voting and led to walkouts in Texas by Democrats.
Also, a Texas law that effectively banned abortions in the state took effect at midnight after the Supreme Court did not yet review the case. If the law is allowed to remain in force, it would dramatically curtail abortion access and effectively end Roe v. Wade. Under the Texas heartbeat bill, women in the state will not be able to have an abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected, which happens as early as six weeks before most women even know they're pregnant. There are no exceptions in the law when it comes to rape or incest. The bill curiously allows any private citizen to enforce the ban by suing a doctor or anyone, including an Uber driver, who helps a woman get an abortion. President Biden called that ban extreme and saying it blatantly violates a woman's constitutional right to have an abortion as affirmed by Roe v. Wade. He added that his administration was deeply committed to a woman's right to have an abortion and pledged to protect and defend that right. The Supreme Court is expected to act on the Texas law, though there is no timeline. In May, the court also agreed to review Mississippi's ban on the procedure after 15 weeks of pregnancy, which also directly challenges Roe v. Wade. And the city of Chicago expanded its travel advisory to the rest of the U.S., accepting only the state of Vermont. The city also advised against travel for Labor Day. Chicago is now dealing with fallout from fears over outbreaks in its public schools after photos of hallways packed with students circulated on social media. While Chicago appears to be hitting a plateau in cases of COVID, the state at large remains in the grip of a third wave. 5,000 new cases were diagnosed in Illinois, pushing the seven-day average of new cases above 4,000 in the state for the first time since late January. Day 226, September 2nd, the Supreme Court surprisingly refused to block a Texas law prohibiting most abortions one day after it took effect. Thus, the measure became the most restrictive abortion measure in the nation. It also appears to be a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. The vote was 5-4, with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the court's three liberal members in dissent. The majority opinion, unusually, was unsigned. It also stressed it was not ruling on the constitutionality of the Texas law and did not mean to limit, quote, procedurally proper challenges to it. However, the court allowed a measure which effectively eliminates abortion in a state to stand. In a subsequent statement Thursday, Biden harshly criticized the law as an unprecedented assault on a woman's constitutional rights. Biden also called the law's novel enforcement structure, which allows private citizens to bring civil suits against anyone who assists a pregnant person seeking an abortion, a bizarre scheme with potential to unleash constitutional chaos. Quote, complete strangers will now be empowered to inject themselves in the most private and personal health decisions faced by women. Biden said he was now launching a whole government effort to respond to that law, tasking the DHHS and the Justice Department to, quote, see what steps the federal government can take to ensure that women in Texas have access to safe and legal abortions. He said the effort would be led from within the White House. Biden has previously not used the abortion. He is a practicing Catholic who has never come out one way or the other on a woman's right to choose before now. A Texas school district has been forced to close after two teachers died of COVID in the same week. The deaths came in the Canale Independent School District just north of Waco against a backdrop of battles over mask mandates in classrooms. Texas's Republican leadership has pursued a hard-right anti-mask policy despite a major spike amid the spread of a highly transmissible Delta variant. In Chicago, their teachers' union said it will, quote, step up resistance if Chicago public schools don't improve COVID-19 safety precautions. The CTU calls current conditions dangerous. CPS is now reporting 28 adult and 11 student cases for the current week. 38 schools have had positive tests overall. These are the Biden Files. Boys from I-94 talked to Margot Mifflin about her best-selling book, 
looking for Miss America. Mifflin discussed how the pageant has been a template for America's charged politics, but also emerged from a ferment of eugenics and white power. The working-class roots of the pageant have also been forgotten in a wave of Christian identity. I-94 asks, and Mifflin answers, can the pageant survive today? I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. How did you get interested in the Miss America pageant in the first place? And what did you, I guess, what did you find the pageant said about womanhood that made you kind of want to pursue this project and blow it out into a, a real nonfiction book? I got interested when I stumbled on it on TV probably six years ago and thought, as John Oliver later thought, how is this still a thing? <laughs> I, <laughs> I was uh, a, a, amazed to see women on stage in swimsuits uh, it, you know, at, at such a recent point in history. And I wanted to understand it. I had a lot of preconceptions about it, some of which were um, you know, blown away once I did my research. And what was really pleasant about researching this was that it, it, it touched so many aspects of our culture. It, it was significant in so many ways in terms of understanding women's history over the past century, spanning class, race, fashion, pop culture. Um, <clears throat> it was launched the year after women won the vote, or I should specify the year after white women won the vote because uh, women of color didn't entirely enjoy that privilege at the time. Uh, but I, uh, I wasn't the first to observe that it was launched on some level in reaction to that. You know, there were women in 1920 uh, had, had, and before had been out protesting for women's equality as a collective group. And then the year after they won the vote, women were competing in the Miss America pageant in swimsuits, individuals representing individual states, um, something typically not a collective action. And so there was an interesting kind of a, um, a, a gender aspect, obviously there. There was a fashion aspect. The swimsuit operated on two levels. It was both progressive in the sense that women were, uh, had, had been uh, entering sports or playing sports and had become much more physically active and specifically were swimming. And so the sort of reduced form-fitting swimsuit was launched in, in response to that. But the pageant was really canny about both seizing on that as a progressive symbol to, you know, encourage women to compete with each other wearing swimsuits, but also reducing them to their bodies. Um, so fashion, class, it was sort of like a middle class ultimately as it evolved uh, because it was originally just a swimsuit competition. But in the 30s, a uh, director, Lenora Slaughter, came along, an ex executive director, who tried to upclass it. And so a lot of what she did, adding talent and, and other sort of qualifying factors, uh, transformed it into a kind of a middle-class debutante ball. You also mentioned, though, and I think this is an important point that I, I frankly hadn't really thought about until I read your book. You mentioned at the very start, you know, that when women won the right to vote in this nation, um, it was white women 
almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. And this competition had more than a whiff of eugenics about it as well. Um, there was a certain uh, feeling that the Miss America pageant could introduce an ideal of womanhood. And that certainly, according to your book at least, was, was carried really later through some of their glory years as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was a, a kind of chilling uh, undertone <laughs> that I, I never really you know associated with. Um, candidly, I think something that maybe people of my generation think of as a little campy and, and outdated, and it, it took on a far more uh, sinister overtone as a result of that. Yes, it definitely segued with uh, eugenics in the sense that the women in the 20s and the 30s had to recite, actually, and into the 40s, because uh, one of the major Miss Americas, Bess Meyerson, had to do this and lied <laughs> in order to become the first Jewish Miss America and the only Jewish Miss America. Um, but the, uh, the requirement that you recite your pedigree uh, was right. built in early on. So people had to say, you know, my family is, has been in this country three or four or five or 10 generations back. Um, and that in itself was a response to immigration because there had been these waves of immigration that threatened some people's idea of what it meant to be an American. And so Miss America codified that by rewarding people who conform to specific ideas. We're thrilled to debut a brand new song from Whiskey Class. Off their forthcoming No Trend release, this is Can't Sleep on My Feet, featuring Alex Kotlarsh. Let every 
Imagine science. We're going to talk about something that that is a little bit um, sad to hear, too. Isn't isn't that right, Rowan? It's heartbreaking. It's it heartbreaking really is because we did a, we did a poll recently. It's an in-house poll that Eureka Cast now has done. Rowan and I have done in collaboration with the Marzuski Fund. We took this poll that reached a several dozen at the very least children we asked mm-hmm. them in the chicago public schooling system what are your top 10 what what do you want to be when you grow up and we had a list of what they wanted to be when we grow up and we right. compiled it into a top 10 a list. top 10 list and 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 the results will shock you yeah, there's there's they're tragic staggering the number one astronaut <sighs> now on the surface, one might look at this and say, well, that's sort of STEM-adjacent. Isn't that that's, what you're looking sort for? sort of STEM-adjacent, yeah. But at the end of the day, the astronaut is just the astrophysicist's driver. He's just taking the, he's just taking the thing up there. All the science happens inside. It happens with the tools in, in that, that, that the astrophysicist has worked hard on. The astronaut's just the guy making sure—he's just the union worker making sure— that the that the cargo gets from point A to point B. He is the guy, the the, the poor schmuck that got strapped on top of the rocket yeah. so that the real work could get done on the ground. He's he's just the poor teamster that they jammed into the in, into the shuttle. It's not a good field. It's not a good place to be. It's not what you want your children to be aspiring no. for. It's, it's frankly, it's not really STEM. Um, number two biomedical engineer all right sure it's not looking very forward no it's not yeah biomedical genetic engineering that would be a better option i think but biomedical engineer it's on the right track you know it's a very once again these are from eight-year-olds primarily um and and so you know, it's understandable for them to have a, such a um, an elementary view of what they could be doing, such as biomedical. Right. Maybe engineer. their parents were bio. Maybe their parents just say. Maybe their parents are geneticists, 
but they say biomedical engineer because it's so much harder to describe what a geneticist does. No, no, this is when we get into the heartbreak. Number right, three, because right. this is this is absolutely heartbreaking. Um, number three, the number three thing that children's aged eight want to be is just gig work, and that's in quotes. That is in quotes, and and this of course uh, sort of encompasses encompasses the, yeah many different types of gig work. Uh, you know, the various sharing, ride sharing, food sharing, right. dog sharing, that sort of thing. Not, yeah, and this is the thing. Not developing those applications. Which there needs to be more of. There needs to be way more of. It's actually doing the work in those applications, which shows a lack of, frankly, STEM and ambition in these kids. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.